0: Listen to
1: and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. A quick note before we dive into this episode, Vox is conducting an audience survey to better serve you. It takes no more than five minutes, and it really helps out the show. Please check it out here, www.voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Thanks, y'all. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan and with my erstwhile co-host Charlie Harding out on paternity leave, it means there's no one to stop me from indulging in some of my more pop eccentric sensibilities, namely today, jazz. Jazz might feel far from the center of popular culture, but that wasn't always the case. At one point in time, jazz ruled popular culture, and arguably the zenith of jazz's popularity was 60 years ago, a year that takes on almost mythic proportions in the minds of many jazz lovers, 1959. Journalist Natalie Weiner covers jazz and pop for Billboard, Rolling Stone, and other outlets, and also sports for SB Nation. But she's been chronicling this important year with her 1959 project. Every day she posts on what happened on this day in jazz 60 years ago, shining a new light on famous musicians and putting some of jazz's forgotten greats back under the spotlight. And... We are very pleased that she is here to join us to listen closely to some of the highlights from this pivotal year, and then we'll turn the lens to 2019 and think about what role jazz plays in culture today. Natalie, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So before we dig into some of these sounds, I'd love to hear what led you to start this 1959 project.
2: Yeah, I mean, the short version is that I was at Billboard, one of the very few people there who cared at all about jazz, and (laughs) I had been sort of asked to come up with pitches that would allow us to talk to older jazz musicians.
3: Hmm. And so
2: I thought, you know, 1959, kind of an obvious starting point, not super original, but I was like, you know, it's definitely a good kind of like guiding light. And the more research I did into it, I was just overwhelmed by the sheer amount of music and news and events and everything that was happening then especially in New York City and like I live in New York so it's basically just my way of time traveling you know because mm-hmm. i wish i could have been alive then to to see all of it because it was just such a like exciting and fruitful time so i was like what yeah. about a timeline where we had a thing for every day and my editors were like that's way too much work <laughs> and so i just like i kept thinking about it and thinking about it and then 2019 came around and i was like it's an anniversary year like I kind of have to just bite the bullet and do it since I've been thinking about it for so long. And yeah, I did not expect to be able to keep it up for this long, but here we are in August. so.
1: Yeah. It's it's an impressive accomplishment. I, I also can very much relate. If I could go back and be born in a different decade, definitely timing it to be like in my early 20s around 1959 is a very appealing option.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, 59, it's just, you know, the 60s have the reputation, right, of like bohemian and hippie and whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like that all this stuff was happening. But 1959 is kind of when everything was starting to break open a little bit. And there was just, like, so much creative energy happening. I mean, the beats kind of get the majority of the credit but one of the reasons that i was interested in like looking more into this project is i feel like jazz needs to be the central artistic force that we consider when we look at that late 50s era as far as like driving american culture you know and not like the mm. beats and the abstract expressionists you know not that they weren't important but their impact was so much more niche and insular you know whereas jazz really like reached and touched so many different aspects of america so
1: Let's talk about some of the blockbuster jazz albums from 1959. And I feel like any discussion has to begin with the Miles Davis Kind of Blue record. Which today still sells 5,000 copies every week and (laughs) by any metric is like the best selling album of all time, best selling jazz album so maybe we can listen to a little bit of miles davis's trumpet solo from the first cut of this record so what Now, that solo might be familiar to a lot of listeners, but I'm curious if in revisiting this album as it was actually released in 1959, if you discovered anything new about this really familiar cultural object.
2: Hmm, That's a really good question. I don't know if I can say that I did, but only because like, It's one of those rare moments when the critical consensus and the popular consensus align. You know, you talk about how this album still sells so many copies, like even today. But for jazz heads, all the same, like if you are a jazz musician, you can't sing that trumpet solo. You know, like you're not really like that's like that's like a rite of passage is just like going really deep on kind of blue. And there's a great book. By Ashley Kahn and it's just specifically about the making of Kind of Blue and he really gets in the weeds and listened to like all of the master tapes you know and recorded every single word that was said you know you hear it and that's what people think jazz sounds like
1: let's listen to one other kind of seismic album from 1959 and then I want to take that idea you were just saying like this is the sound of jazz Mm -hmm. and see what that actually entails like if we're getting our idea of jazz from 1959 what is that idea Mm -hmm. and I think the the other blockbuster best-selling album from this year would be Dave Brubeck's Time Out. Mm-hmm. Should we listen to Take Five or Blue Rondo a la Turk? Oh, yeah. oh too late. I think Ernie, Take Five Ernie made is
2: probably, call. yeah, again, it's just one of those records that's like the thing.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: To me, this is another album that, like you were saying, just kind of screams jazz. (laughs) And if these two classic albums from 1959 are the benchmark for a lot of casual listeners of what jazz sounds like, what idea of jazz is being presented to them?
2: For sure. I think it's one that's very refined, very sophisticated, Mm. you know, kind of music that isn't necessarily aggressive in any way you know like kind of blue and timeout are both records that really played on the like west coast ideas of like cool you know and miles had already kind of gone into cool stuff with obviously the birth of the cool but like on kind of blue he was really like combining that with modal improvisation and so there's a fluidity and a freedom that comes without any sort of like really intense climaxes or decrescendos you know it's kind of like even keel a little bit, and that makes it play well, for better or worse, as background music, you know, which is why you sort of see these albums sold or played in like Starbucks, you know, like that's kind of where, and like, you know, Miles Davis is like rolling over in his grave, like that was never obviously his intention. Brubeck, I think you could argue, did care about that. They were very different artists, but um, it is interesting that they tapped into such a similar sound, you know, at the same time.
1: Yeah, both of these records seem to have almost a dual identity at the time, there was something innovative, mm-hmm. radical, and pathbreaking about each of them. Miles Davis, as you mentioned, using these new modal textures to explore different ways of improvising. Dave Brubeck using, in, in the case of Take 5 that we just listened to, a very unusual 5-4 time signature. Today, what I'm hearing is that maybe some of the more radical aspects of that music have been stripped away and it's more the soundtrack of, coffee shops and you know light uh and cocktail music i guess
2: <laughs> right i mean i think that's how a lot of people encounter them and i don't even know if the radical aspects have been stripped away necessarily just as much as they were so popular that they've become neutralized you know like anything mm, that once yeah. at one point sounds like new and crazy like eventually becomes normal you know if if it becomes right. like widespread enough and so that's kind of what happened here with other aspects of jazz that didn't necessarily happen as much so that's why some of it still sounds so like wild, you know?
1: Mm, yeah, no, it's a great point. I want to move now to another event from 1959 that I think continues to hold a lot of uh, mystique and intrigue for jazz listeners, and that's. What you chronicle in the 1959 project is the the gradual decline and eventual death of one of the most important American singers of all time, Billie Holiday.
2: Yeah, her death in that year was obviously a monumental event. I think maybe what is hard to understand today is that she was like a massive star on the scale of like Mm -hmm. any celebrity death that we would think of now. You know, like Prince or something, you know, like that's the level at which it was covered and talked about. And people knew, you know, she had been arrested before. You know, her story was pretty well known. She had actually already published her autobiography. And so. There was this whole mythology that um, Farrah Jasmine Griffin actually wrote an incredible book that I recommend to everyone. But it just sort of talks about how Holiday like constructed this whole mythology around herself. And some of it's true and some of it's not. And it's like very difficult to disentangle the, you know, the drug use, the prostitution, the sort of like notorious promiscuity, like anti-artistic genius and all of these things that went into like cultivating her public persona And, Hmm. you know, and so that obviously came to a head when she died. I mean, her last recordings have been controversial for a long time because you can like hear that she's in poor health, like in her voice. Mm -hmm. It's tragic in a lot of ways to hear. But also, you know, she's still an artist, like she's still doing her thing. (laughs) She's not like incapacitated. At, to me, one of the most tragic parts about her death is that she didn't even have her cabaret card in New York when she died. Like she hadn't performed in New York, I don't think at all, in 1959 because of her legal issues. And it's just like to me that points to the kind of systemic racism and discrimination that was more than handicapping for artists at that period, you know, <laughs> because it's just mm-hmm. like that there's no reason why that should have been the case, you know. But.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. You point out in uh, your your posts on the topic that the way her death uh, was reported was very different too, depending on whether it was a more mainstream news outlet or a, a, an outlet more focused on a black readership, like Jet. Yeah. In some of the more mainstream accounts, it's very her death is very sensationalized, uh, and in and in others, as you say, it's in the Jet piece, for instance, it's much more focused on. Billy Holiday as, as a victim of some of these more systemic forces that you're talking about.
2: Right. And the fact that that was recognized even at that time. You know, I think a lot of times we assume that, like, we're only able to notice these things in hindsight, you know. But, like, there were people at the time saying, like, no, Billy Holiday is a victim of the system, you know, which she, I think, mm. was. And, I mean, Black Papers chronicled her... Death, like, I mean, there was a three-part series in the Chicago Defender, like, from the guy who co-wrote her autobiography, and he's kind of questionable, you know, but still, the fact that they took a serialized account of her death, you know, it's like, this was, it was a huge, huge deal, you know, and I, I don't know, I posted this, and I will just tell everyone to read it over and over and over again, but James Baldwin commemorated her death, like, the month that it happened in commentary, and it's actually wrapped up in a review of Porgy and Bess, which was another massive jazz moment of 1959. But he mm. sort of intertwines her story with the movie in this way that's just like devastating and perfect, as most things James Baldwin are. But yeah,
1: let's listen to a bit of Billie Holiday in her prime to get a sense of of why her her death was was such a big deal. Uh, let's listen to a bit of a classic recording like her version of Blue Moon.
3: Blue Moon You saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own
1: This clip has so much of the aspects of holiday style that would prove so influential. The, the incredible rhythmic control, kind of laying these phrases slightly behind the beat manipulating a, a melody from its original contour to fit her sort of artistic vision and then that timbre that is no, where mean, words start to and fail I think,
2: like uh, what I was just thinking about is how like that sound and like how distinctive she was it sort of defined an era you know that late 40s early 50s time mm. and so her death Along with the death of Lester Young, who was one of her frequent collaborators and also a legendary jazz musician, he died a few months before um, in New York and inspired the song Goodbye Pork by Hat, which is a famous Charles Mingus tune. Their death sort of marked the end of an era in a way, like for jazz, you know, and that's one another reason why 1959 is such an interesting turning point, you know, because you're seeing not necessarily the first generation, but one of the earlier generations kind of like move on. Louis Armstrong was still active, you know, and he's kind of like Mm. the grandfather of it all, you know, which creates this interesting overlap. But you're seeing some of the marquee figures pass, you know, and so then there's this question of like, who is the torch going to, you know, where is the music going, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like another kind of interesting thing about Billy's, Billy's death. But I mean, aesthetically, it's just like, I mean, she's one of the geniuses of American music period. And, like you said, it's just for her very intentional ability to channel like such strong storytelling into her music using an array mm. of devices that traditionally instrumentalists use more than singers. You know, and so that was what kind of set her apart,
1: yeah. she her aim was to sound like, the saxophone of Lester Young, who who you just mentioned. And you can turn on the radio dial today and you have a high probability of hearing someone influenced, whether they know it or not, by Billie Holiday. But there are also, I think, a few contemporary singers who might owe a very specific debt. And of the many, two that really come to mind for me are Amy Winehouse, who in this recording we'll listen to is actually reinterpreting a Billy Holiday number. Um, there is no greater love.
3: Hmm. There is no greater love than what I feel feel No sweet sound.
1: Kind of uncanny to me to to listen to that recording decades after Holiday's death.
2: I mean, she's almost miming it, you know, like it's yeah. like that close that you're like you're towing the line a little bit. I'm kind of honestly, I was a little surprised you brought up Amy Winehouse because for me the the clearest Billy um, acolyte is actually Erica Badu, but you know, I, I don't know. That's like who now- I hear is. <laughs>
1: Natalie, you read my mind. Our next clip is from (laughs) Erica Badu. This is On and On. There you go. We are on the same wavelength. <laughs> it's interesting because it's not, you know. Sometimes, and we'll talk about this more a little later. But sometimes there are moments where I, you know, as a jazz fan, I'm like, oh, very good, very wistful. Like, oh, mm-hmm. no one, you know, no, no one listens to this music anymore. It doesn't matter in our society. But then you listen to someone like Erica Badu, and you're like, no, this, this. Some of these sounds from 1959 are still very much with us today.
2: With Erica, it's the idea of singing in a way that doesn't have to be pretty first you know what I mean it's like really Mm -hmm. manipulating your voice in a way that's like just having so much control that you can do that you know it's like it's really really hard and also just resisting the temptation to be overly romantic or like nostalgic
1: so earlier you mentioned Billie Holiday's final recordings and for me one of the powerful parts of uh, your 1959 project and, and revisiting this pivotal year was listening to those recordings again. Let's listen first to a recording of a tune called Billy's Blues from earlier in Billie Holiday's career.
3: I love my man I'm alive. I say I don't I love my man I'm a life I say I don't But I'll quit my man I'm alive. life I say I won't
1: and now let's listen to a recording of the same song, this time uh, from actually the last recording that Billy Holiday made, a live session at the Storyville Club in Boston. And uh, just as a warning, the, the audio quality here is is not great, but it'll give us a chance to compare these two versions of the same song. I
2: love my
3: man I'm alive, I say I don't I love my man, I'm alive, I say I don't, but I'll quit my man, I'm
1: alive, I say I won't. Now, I'd always avoided listening to these last recordings you can hear her control of of pitch and rhythm and vibrato isn't quite the same. It made me almost uncomfortable to listen to. But I think you suggest like a different way to to hear some of these final recordings.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just think it's like, I don't know, with age comes wisdom. You know, she was like, it's not like she wasn't with it you know, until the very end. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that you just hear something different. It's like the fact that it doesn't sound the same is actually good. You know, like would you want her to be repeating the same thing that she did all the other times, you know? I, I don't know. I think yeah. it's like no. her ability to adapt was um yeah. a strength.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I find that very compelling because it's like you could listen to this in one way and say, oh, this is – Her not at the peak of her powers, why Mm. would I listen to this? But then on the other hand, there's this kind of bravery and conviction that comes from someone at the very end of their life still up on stage singing their heart out that is now I listen to and I'm like, wow, it gives me chills in a way. Like it's it's there's something very powerful about it.
2: In the grand scheme, you know, like zooming out for a second. Like, one of the reasons I wanted to do this project is because I think it's a year that gets so often canonized, you know, in, like, really straightforward ways. Like, we're talking about, like, Kind of Blue, Time Out, right. you know, Shape of Jazz to Come, Mingus ah, um, like, Giant Steps was recorded this year. These are all, like, incredible jazz records that would change the course of what was to come. Like, there's no, mm. no question about that. But the thing that really fascinates me is just... What would it have been like to be a part of the scene at that moment? Like, what do you learn from like listening to more than just those records that have been deemed by whoever to be the best and most important, you know? And I, I, I'm i not I'm far from the only person who thinks this. But like those kinds of histories, I think, are actually kind of toxic, you know, and like, yeah, it can provide mm-hmm. a listening guide for a beginner, you know, somebody just starting out. But like, what if we decided to retell the whole story from square one and go back and look at all the information we have available and say, well, what was actually happening? Like, what's getting ignored and why? Who decided that this was good and this was the thing that we need to listen to, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Those are the kinds of questions I've been trying to ask.
1: And I love that your way of doing that is like, okay, well, let's just see every single day (laughs) of 1959, let's see what was actually happening, and then we won't fall victim to that sort of looking back in hindsight uh, myopia. Yeah. One of the things that gets erased, uh, that comes through really powerfully in this 1959 project is the stories of the women in jazz who have not unlike Billie Holiday, who, who, who have not been uh, favored by history and who have sort of been left on the margins of the story of jazz. Like, I'm someone who has uh, a degree in musicology and has studied mm-hmm. jazz, but there were a lot of female musicians, especially instrumentalists, mm-hmm. which historically have not been treated as well by jazz historians as the vocalists, There were so many that I'd never heard of before. And that just kind of blew my mind, honestly.
2: Yeah, I mean, same.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping we could listen to a few of these forgotten artists and see whether it's something like you were saying, like, is this were were these artists rightly kind of left behind or is there something else at work here? Um, Let's begin with the incredible piano stylings of Muriel Roberts, who only released one album called Music for All Times and Seasons. <laughs> this is the, the first track off that record.
2: I mean, wow. it's like Muriel, it's Christmas music, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Muriel, I think, is an interesting case study um, just because it's like she can clearly play like it's a fun record. You know, I'm not necessarily arguing that oh, Muriel yeah. rog- Roberts is canon. You know, I don't I mean, <laughs> if you decide that there should be a canon. But like, I think it's more like what was she capable of and what was she not allowed to continue to do? You know, like the fact that there's only one record, you know. And, like, she was gigging in New York. You know, that's how I came across her name was because I was, like, looking at ads from the time, and it was, like, Muriel Roberts playing at whatever place she was playing, you know, doing her thing. And I was like, okay, who is this person? And, like you're saying, that happened. that's happened to me so much, like, in the course of this project. And I, too, am a person who's read about jazz, who's played jazz for a long time, who's written about it a lot, you know, and these names are new to me. So it's like, so what does that mean that this whole class of people – was just determined, like, not to have mattered. You know, is it possible that all of them were insignificant? And some people, like Mary Lou Williams, obviously does get some, you know, recognition today. But even that is, like, really minor compared to her male counterparts. And people like yeah. Shirley Scott, I mean, she was everywhere in this year. And we talked a bit about Melba Liston, who was a trombone player. She was doing arrangements for all kinds of, like, mainstream artists and stuff. It's just, you could go on and on and on and on and on, and, like, That's the fact that in doing this project, I really haven't had to try to create gender parity. You know, I don't think that it's 50-50. You know, I think it's probably somewhere along the lines of 30-70. But the fact that I really haven't had to go out of my way to do that, I've simply paid attention to the women who I've come across. You know, like that to me says something like pretty damning about how, you know, about the gatekeepers in jazz at that time and still today, you know
1: you're saying that if you just look at what was being reported in the news and who was actually playing and releasing mm-hmm. records in 1959, it would be something, I mean, again, not with any numbers, but like something like a 30-70 split in terms of women to men. Whereas if you look at, like say, a jazz, a history of jazz textbook today, those numbers would probably be a lot smaller, probably yeah. be like 1090 or something.
2: Right. And the women are all like footnotes, you know, like their contributions Mm. are deemed derivative and insignificant, you know, because in jazz history, like the emphasis is so often on originality and innovation and like who is deemed to have done the thing first. You know what I mean? And it's just like I I find that kind of a tiring way to look at it overall anyway. (laughs) Um, But like I, I just think like the... The other issue with not writing these women into jazz history is that it's meant every subsequent generation of women in jazz has had to be like the women in jazz. You know, we're still at this point where women in jazz can't just be jazz musicians. You know, they have to be the women jazz musicians, like even in 2019. And a big reason for that is that they're viewed as new still because this history isn't written, you know. So and it's a thing, you know, I write about sports, too. It's the exact same problem in every other kind of music. It's the same thing. When we don't have women written into the history, they will continue to have to reinvent the wheel every time they just do the thing. You know,
1: you point out on the liner notes of this Muriel Roberts album, there's. The, the author actually challenges listeners to do kind of a blindfold test to right. uh, I
2: forgot about that. Play
1: this play this Muriel Roberts records for your friend and see if they can tell that it's a, a woman pianist. That actually feels like it still has a lot of relevance. I almost want to play this next clip uh, without identifying the artist and see if we just naturally have certain you know masculine or feminine associations listening to it.
2: Was this the William Barton okay, so one? I, I can't remember. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Cool.
1: <laughs> Like so I mean I'm going to be I'm going to be perfectly real like if you did a blindfold full test with me and and played this for me I would be like this is some you know like 7 foot tall texan <laughs> like backwoods tenor sax player male like super grungy right. and it's just got I guess what I'm saying is this is not what you would ex- or what I would expect. This is an artist I'd never heard of until coming across her in your 1959 project, Willeen Barton, just getting absolutely filthy on the tenor <laughs> sax in this blues number called Rice Pudding.
2: <laughs> and the fact that she played with an all woman band too, which wasn't enormously unusual, it was like, Unusual mm. enough that it would be like, hey, look at these ladies playing music, you know. But but there were more than one, if that makes sense. Um, mm. But yeah, it's like she's playing R and B, you know, on saxophone, which really is not a thing we ever really associate with women, um, even now. Mm. Uh, and so just the fact that that was that that existed, you know, and, and that she wasn't the only one that. Many women participated in big bands and in bands all over, you know, and they just aren't noted. And also, it was just harder for women to do anything at that time just because of the expectations of, like, getting married and having kids and all that kind of stuff. So, like, the musician's life was not necessarily conducive to kind of the societal expectations for women. Like, you really had to buck the system just to be a musician in the first place. Um, But, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Another striking uh, quote from your project comes uh, from the aforementioned trombonist Melba Liston, who described the difficulties of keeping together her own all-women band in the the nineteen fifties. Um, you know, people. She said it was, she she said she had to disband her her all-women group because people had to keep dropping out to get married because they were pregnant cuz to join the workforce it's you right. realize yeah to be a, a to decide to be a woman in jazz was a, not just a musical decision it was like a whole lifestyle choice that meant you had to lo- leave a lot of other things behind maybe
2: right and that one that was more or less acceptable for men and like absolutely unheard of for women <laughs> you know like yeah. if you wanted to do that you know it's just like you're saying like I don't think I can swear but you're like saying Everyone else can suck it, basically, <laughs> you know, and, and most women aren't willing to to do that, you know, for a lot of reasons that make a lot of sense. Um, And so that makes the achievements of the women who I have come across in this process, like even more striking to me. The fact that most of them did only get to make one record or one single or whatever, but like they did it anyway, you know. Yeah. Another name we haven't brought up is Dinah Washington, who had like a massive year in 1959. Um, and her and Ray Charles actually sort of operated in a similar space that I find super fascinating. This like area where r and jazz were like overlapping and intermingling, you know. Um, but hmm. they both found enormous success um, in this year. They kind of had their their breakout singles actually, um, both in 1959. Um, Dying Dinah Washington had What a Difference a Day Made. Ray Charles had... What I say in in 1959, oh, yeah, among of others, course, of course, um, yeah. and Dinah Washington also not really critically acclaimed among uh, jazz heads necessarily.
3: What a difference a day made. Twenty-four little hours.
2: And Amy Winehouse was like a big, big, big Dinah Washington fan.
1: I want to take a quick break and then return to this topic of how do we understand jazz today and what does listening back 60 years to the heyday make us think about the role of jazz today? This is exciting. Support
0: for Switched on Pop comes from Vibe Check. If you were an Intuit fan and you are missing Sam Sanders, then have no fear, he's back with another great pod called Vibe Check. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture. From Elon Musk and foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup to Usher's Super Bowl halftime show, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. They're currently doing a series called Hey Sis, where they're highlighting the compelling stories of black women and their achievements. They're being joined by special guests Regina King, Audie Cornish, Raquel Willis, and more. Vibe Check is your favorite group chat come to life. You can join the Weekly Kiki every Wednesday. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Can't believe Sam made me say Kiki.
2: 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.
1: So one way to sort of stress test the changing role of jazz in culture is to go back to an event that's been happening continuously since the 1950s and was in its sixth iteration in 1959. It's the Newport Jazz Festival. And Natalie, you were just at the 2019 (laughs) version uh, of of the Newport Jazz Festival. So based on what you've learned about the festival in 1959, how does it compare to what it's like today?
2: I mean, it was definitely... Bigger, I think, just as far as the number Mm -hmm. of people who went. Um, It was like a massive attraction. People drove from all over, which they still do. And I think in 1959, it was seen as a harbinger of a larger trend because it was the first jazz festival Mm. but in 1959 there were a number of other large jazz festivals Um, the first Playboy Jazz Festival was at Chicago Stadium the anniversary of that was just this past weekend so that's like a 20,000 person capacity venue you know (laughs) like filled with jazz fans and then like there was a Randall's Island Jazz Festival too that happened later in August so it was just like there was a huge appetite and I would say now It's definitely a more niche uh, thing. (laughs) Jazz doesn't have quite the same uh, pull for the mass audience. But I would say I think things are turning a little bit and have been maybe for like the past decade because the Internet has made jazz so much more accessible to a younger audience. You know, like if you want to listen to something, Uh, you can just Google it. And there are so many hip hop artists and electronic artists who like cite jazz and use it in their work. Kendrick Lamar was kind of a huge catalyst for, like, a new wave of jazz musicians out of California. You know, there's now kind of a lot of local scenes like Chicago and London that are really, like, driven by young adults, like 30-year-olds and under, approximately, you know? (laughs) Um, Mm, And so... That attracts audiences of the same age. And honestly, my only like real criticism of this year's jazz festival was I feel like they really need to get rid of some of the chairs, you know, because there's like not enough room (laughs) to like stand and watch the people at this point, because there are so many young people who want to be there. And, um, You know, and be standing and appreciating the music and don't bring lawn chairs, you know, which is kind of the Newport Jazz Festival way is to like bring your lawn chair and plop down at the main stage and just sit there all day.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Get on your feet. Uh, I mean, that's that's encouraging to me. It makes me think of. Kendrick Lamar almost has a latter day Miles Davis like making jazz cool. again. I mean, I,
2: I wrote a story that controversially had that exact title, but it was about how, you know, Kendrick sort of served as a centerpiece for people like Kamasi Washington and Thundercat and Terrace Martin, who is now in Herbie Hancock's band. And he produced Herbie's new album, I believe. I could be wrong on that. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. But Kendrick was the
2: one who sort of formed the place for all of them to like hit the mainstream. You know, they were just like jamming in LA. Like, I mean, Thundercat obviously had his own career before, but Kendrick sort of brought them all in the room together with him and his major label, you know, sort of Heft, uh, really like skyrocketed them to a different tier. And that's fascinating, you know, to see how jazz has become a part of his work.
1: You know, I think there was a point in time recently where jazz had a reputation that was kind of the opposite of what it was in 59 and what you're describing today, Mm -hmm. Uh, a moment perhaps in which what we were talking about at the onset of this episode, the way that these landmark records like Kind of Blue and Time Out established jazz as maybe a sort of refined coffee shop kind of uh, style. Yeah. I've made a habit of anytime popular media like mocks jazz, I try to um, (laughs) save it. Um, So I wanted to just play one clip that I think captures the attitude that for a long time a lot of people had about jazz. This is from the British uh, comedy duo, The Mighty Boosh.
3: Are you aware of the music known as jazz? Oh. Are you aware of jazz music, the movement of jazz? Why do you keep going on about jazz? For? Because it's the most important art form in the twentieth century. No one listens to jazz. Science teachers and the mentally ill—that's all jazz is for. You better take that back, you electro ponce. Or what? You better just take it back, all. Or... I won't be taking that back. I'll be leaving it out there for all to see. Drink it back up. No, I hate jazz. You hate jazz. Yeah. You fear jazz, huh? Ah, Shut yeah. your mouth. Yeah, you fear, Judge, don't no, you? No, I don't. You fear the lack of rules. No. The lack of boundaries. Oh, it's a fence. No, it's soft. Ah, What's happening? The shapes, the chaos. Huh? It has to be simple. No, Stop it, it, it. for you, doesn't it? Stop the Simple evil. little dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. Shut your the mouth, The melody Alan. gets abstract. You mess your trousers and run to your mummy. Shut, Shut your mouth. Huh? dee I don't know. Um, I mean, I think that's <laughs>
2: hilarious.
3: <but laughs> I
1: do, too, but I do, I do think it captures this attitude towards jazz of it being sort of serious and mm-hmm. a little dry. So it gives me a lot of optimism that you think that jazz might be drifting back towards some relevance in popular culture. And I, I'm wondering if someone, you're, you're someone who covers jazz, but also the pop world and the mm-hmm. R&B world. You've profiled Ariana Grande and Sheryl Crow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about Going from 59 to now, like, why jazz might have that relevance today again?
2: I think, like, the assumptions sort of that are being played on in that clip, like, are real. And they're sort of specifically a product of this neoclassical era of jazz, almost Mm, the era when... Some of the biggest figures in jazz were fighting really hard to make it part of America's institutions, you know, which is kind of a double-edged sword. They wanted the music to be taken seriously and to get more resources, but as a result, that meant sort of making it elitist, you know, like a symphony or something, or inaccessible or somehow... If you don't understand this, there's something wrong with you. You know, it's not that there's something bad about the music. You know, it's that you just don't get it. And sort of a lot of those kinds of walls were put up, I would say, from 1975 to 2000. But the distinction has never been as big, I think, for musicians as it has been for listeners. Many musicians of all stripes, like, come through jazz or, like, have played it at some point or listened to it or whatever, you know, because it's just, like, music. I think genre often means a lot less to musicians than it does to to listeners. Um, but, like now that everybody sort of has access to all that information and, like, oh, maybe it's not as scary once you actually listen to it a time or two. You know what I mean? Like, those walls are sort of disintegrating because, like, the barriers to entry are so low. So that's just my mm. take on it. But I think even in 1959, even though jazz was such an enormous part of TV soundtracks, movie soundtracks, these giant festivals, it was, like, part of R&B that was making massive charts moves and even stuff like Ama Jamal's Poinciana, you know, that was a hit. You know, that was a single that was in jukeboxes. Yeah. So there was a mainstream jazz presence in the way that there isn't necessarily today, but it was still associated with the beatniks as this huh. too cool like Stuff for like weirdos, you know, like so it was those (laughs) dual forces at play. Like one of the reasons that it had such a big impact on TV and movies is because people were like, oh, this is code for something like sort of illicit and mysterious. The movies that had jazz soundtracks were like anatomy of a murder. What do you think that's about? (laughs) It's like this stuff that's sort of (laughs) meant to be code for like the dark side or whatever or something like something. Torrid, you Uh, know, like, I I don't know, just stuff that's that's not for everyone. You know, that's not mainstream. That's not acceptable necessarily. Um, So it's sort of Mm. there were other forces at work there, too.
1: Natalie, thank you so much for joining us and taking us through some of the discoveries and rediscoveries uh, you've, you've come across in exploring the jazz scene of 1959. Uh, I've I've really enjoyed this conversation, both because as a jazz head, it kind of shines new light on figures that are known to me and others that are unknown to me, and because as we fast forward to the present, it makes me feel like jazz can still have a place in popular music today, and maybe we're actually inching towards that. So with that in mind, I was hoping you might... Uh, contribute a few songs to a playlist that we can share with our listeners kind of a 1959 to 2019 playlist featuring some of the artists you found from 1959 and some of the ones you're listening to today
2: yeah sure definitely
1: We will throw up a link to Natalie's 1959 project, as well as some of the key texts she mentioned, James Baldwin. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can have you back sometime.
2: Definitely. Thank you again for having me.
1: This episode of Switched on Pop was produced by moi, Nate Sloan. Special thanks to Natalie Weiner for joining us. Check our show notes for links to a Spotify playlist and some of the articles she was talking about. Switched on Pop is edited and engineered by... Brandon McFarland. Our production fellow is Megan Lubin, and our community manager is Sarah Terry. Executive producers are Nishat Kirwa and Liz Nelson. We are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and you can find more shows anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, App, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, et cetera. Hit us up on Twitter at switchedonpop or email us contact at switchedonpop.com. We'll be back in another week with a fire episode for you. And until then, thanks for listening. Okay, one more thing before we go. We are conducting an audience survey to better serve you. It takes no more than five minutes to fill out and it really helps out the show. Please take our survey here www.voxmedia.com slash
0: Support for Switched on Pop comes from Vibe Check. If you need more of my friend Sam Sanders in your life, then you'll want to check out his new pod called Vibe Check. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture from foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup. Every Wednesday, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's like your favorite group chat come to life. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.